Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 28. We're going to finish up the chapter this morning. You can find it on page 937 in the Pew Bibles. If you've ever read through the book of Acts before, you might have have come to the ending and thought that that was a bit abrupt and strange. Uh, It's a rather unusual ending to what has been a large unfolding drama when we think about all of the persecution, when we think about the missionary journeys, when we think about Paul's uh, arrest, his defense, his harrowing voyage to Rome. He finally makes it, right? Finally makes it to Rome after all of this time, after God had told him three years earlier that that's what he was going to do. Finally makes it there. He preaches an all-day sermon to the Jews, and then Luke just kind of quickly scrolls out, and and basically uh, he was under house arrest on his own dime, and he preached the gospel at the end. And you're like, wait a minute, what what just happened here? I mean, did did Paul die? I mean, did did Paul, uh, was he released? Did he ever make it to Spain? We're left with so many questions about this ending. It, it, this is not like the Lord of the Rings, right? Where, where there's like 843 different endings and it tells you every you know, conclusion or scenario to every single character that, that had just been mentioned just sort of in brief throughout the, the trilogy. I mean, Tolkien goes so far as like he's actually throwing characters in from other trilogies and kind of telling you what happens to them. And like, if you wanted to know what happened to Darth Vader, right, like decades before the movies ever came out, I mean, Tolkien will tell you, but, but not the book of Acts, right? I mean, Luke just drops the plot like a sinkhole. Or does he? You see, if Acts were a biography of the Apostle Paul, or the other apostles, yeah, it's a fail. I mean, Peter gets dropped in Acts 12. He's briefly mentioned in Acts 15. We know nothing about the last 25 years of his ministry. All of the other apostles barely even mentioned. Most of them go unnamed. We have more history of Philip and Stephen than we do of the apostle John. Right? When you think about the history of, of, of the church and what happened, you know, we know nothing of their death. We know nothing of their impact on the lives of the generations to come. Some people refer to Acts as a history of the early church. Well, it's not that either. That too would be a fail. Because if you're writing a history of the early church, you would at least go through the death of the apostles. You'd mention when they wrote their letters, who carried on their ministry after them, if not all the way through the imperial persecutions leading up to Constantine's edict to allow for tolerance of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. But there's none of that. And that's because Acts is not a biography and Acts is not a history of the early church. Acts is a theological history. It's a theological history of the providential plan of God to establish his church regardless of any threat, of anything that would attempt to stand against it. Acts is a theological history of the increase and the multiplication and the prevailing of the word of God. We heard that repeated over and over and over again. Acts is a theological history of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in God's people, enabling them to faithfully do what God had called them to do. Acts is a theological history of the continuing mission of Christ. 
As I, I don't know if you remember, because it's been quite a while since we looked at it. I mean, it's October 4th, 2015, when we first looked at it. But do you remember how Acts began? All right. Acts began with Luke saying, in my first book, O Theophilus, his first book being the, the Gospel of Luke, second book being the Gospel of Acts, in my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So, Gospel Luke, what's that about? All that Jesus began to do and teach, right? Until the day when he was taken up after he was given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so, Luke's gospel was all about Jesus, what Jesus had begun to do and teach. Acts is about all that the risen Lord Jesus Christ continued to do and teach. And when you realize that, this is not ultimately a story about the Apostle Paul, then the end makes a lot more sense. Paul is bound, but the Word of God is not bound. Paul will die. Paul's ministry will end. But Jesus lives and his mission continues on even to this day. And knowing that that is the truth, I pray that it would put our lives in perspective for us this morning. That it would serve to help redefine glory and success and ambition and purpose and meaning and well-being and even the trials that we may experience in this life so that we might come to understand how our lives fit within this unfolding legacy, this unfolding, this continuing mission of Christ. Because what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 28 is that despite obstacles and disbelief, the mission of Christ continues. May we all embrace the purpose for which we were made, for which we were sustained and redeemed. The only purpose that might bring true and eternal joy to us as the living and abiding word that remains, that continues, that perseveres, that prevails and increases and multiplies takes root in our hearts. Let's read Acts 28, beginning in verse 1. It says, After we brought, were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, for though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. 
After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, not to be confused with New York, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petoli. There, we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the Forum of Apius and Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have, been asked to see, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Despite obstacles and disbelief, the mission of Christ continues. And so what I want to do in our time this morning is just to look at that statement in three parts. And so first, despite obstacles. There have been a lot of obstacles in the way of the mission of Christ throughout the book of Acts. There's been fear, fear among the body. There's been the religious and civil leaders, both of the Jews and the Gentiles, that were standing opposed to the gospel. There was persecution that arose, martyrdom. Within the church, there was difficulties embracing the inclusion of the Gentiles. They faced magicians. They faced false teachers. There was disagreements among the body. There were demons, riots, attempted murder, imprisonments, afflictions, travel delays, storms, and shipwrecks. 
Last week in chapter 27, it ended with Paul and his 275 shipmates dripping wet, waiting safely onto land. Verse 1 tells us that it was only after that they were, they were brought safely to that land that they learned the island they were on was called Malta. And the people there were very nice barbarians. If you look down in your footnote, you see that that's the Greek word barbaroi, which means barbarians or non-Greek speakers. So clearly they were not civilized because they didn't happen to speak Greek but still, they were kind, right? They built a fire. They, they welcomed them in as it was raining and cold. And yet, these were uncivilized barbarians. I, I find that slightly amusing because it's interesting how we can arbitrarily assign who is civilized and who's a barbarian based upon some very narrow parameters, one of them not being, being kind or being hospitable, right? But nevertheless... This is important because this is actually the first major cross-cultural obstacle that Paul has encountered in his attempt to minister to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Everyone else that he has encountered up to this point, whether they were Jew or whether they were Gentile, they spoke a language that he could speak. And so he could verbally communicate the gospel to them. But these folks here, these barbarians, these non-Greek speakers spoke Punic. They didn't speak Greek. They didn't speak Latin. They didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And so Paul had this challenge before him in trying to communicate the gospel, which is probably why we don't see him explicitly doing that, right? It's either that or Luke just fails to record it. Now, we do know that, that Luke does record some of the communication back and forth, but more than likely, this was really, really broken, but despite this obstacle of not being able to communicate with them, not just being able to go and outright proclaim the, the kingdom of, of God and, and preach the truth about Jesus Christ to them, we still see Paul wanting to make a good impression. He's still wanting to build bridges for the gospel, right? Though these folks are considered by the world to be barbarians, Paul doesn't think that. Right? He, he wants to actually help. He jumps right in. I mean, look at this. The guy goes and he serves by picking up sticks. Let me just keep this in mind. This is after this huge, at least two-week-long, violent storm. He's barely eaten anything during that time. Right? They just lost their ship, and Paul had just com completed one-third of a triathlon by swimming to shore. He's cold, he's wet, he's probably sick, right, or, or just on the verge of it, right? And so what does Paul do? Well, he, he grabs a blanket and plops down by the fire. No. Paul gets up and picks up sticks. I mean, you see the servant-heartedness of this guy. Immediately, he's trying to build bridges to the gospel. He takes nothing for granted. This is a great example for us. I mean, you know, like, even in those contexts where, where we don't have the ability to outright communicate the gospel, how do we communicate the gospel with our nonverbal communication? How do we communicate the love of Christ, his servant-heartedness of Christ in the way that we engage with others? No matter what our condition was, I mean, Paul, again, sick, 
shipwrecked, right? Starving, triathlete, I don't know. But for all of Paul's effort, that doesn't go according to plan either, does it? I mean, verse 3 says that when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And so add wild animals to the list of obstacles to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, could you imagine this right there? Like, how random is that? You've got Paul, and he's only trying to serve. He's only trying to be an example for Christ and what he's doing. And he can't even pick up sticks without something coming along and hindering the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I thought about this week, and I was like, man, if that was me, I would be moaning so bad right now. Just because, like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't even pick up sticks and this thing go right. And so... The native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, and they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, for though he has escaped from the sea, justice, and they're thinking divine justice, perhaps their God of justice has not allowed him to live. So another obstacle, this one related to their belief system and worldview. I mean, it only took a moment for them, despite Paul's well-meaning effort, for them to look upon this very unfortunate, random, weird situation, this snake bite, and come to the conclusion that Paul is a guilty man. Oh, that totally random, unfortunate thing that happened to you? Well, that's just karma, because you are a murderer. And maybe you've experienced something like that yourself. Ever been trying to engage with an unbelieving neighbor or somebody like that, and they just kind of immediately jump to some wrong conclusion about you because of this one little thing, you know? Kids act out of line, and suddenly you're some horrible parent or, you know, who knows what it is. Drive a really loud Jeep, and they don't like that very much. You know? And Paul, all he can do is shake the snake off into the fire and hope that they can come to a better conclusion. And they do, sort of, right? It says, they were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited for a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, he was a god. That's usually the conclusion that we jump to, right? It's not quite what Paul was looking for here, but again, he wasn't able to clarify. The way he was back in Lystra, when those folks started worshiping him as a god, he had the ability to communicate that, but he couldn't because of the language barrier here. But despite the language and cultural obstacles to the gospel, Paul still did what he could so that, not so that they would worship him as a god, but so that he could, again, build bridges to the gospel. Look at verse 7. Look at what he does. It says, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. So Paul has no ability to communicate the gospel. These people are thinking that he's a god. What does he do? He prays. Gods don't pray to themselves. In his prayer, this is evidence that he too was a man who worshipped not just a God, but the true God. 
the true arbiter of justice, the true God who alone has the power to heal. You see, even our prayers testify to the mission of Christ. You guys get that, right? When you find yourself so overwhelmed by the obstacles to the gospel that all you can do is pray, that is not some sort of last resort. I've done all I could, can't do anything else. I guess I've just, I'm going to have to pray. No, your prayer is testimony to the continuing work of God in Christ. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so, whether Paul was able to articulate the gospel or not, whether language remained an obstacle to the gospel, we see Paul lived among them in such a way that relationships of value and respect and caring were formed. Paul didn't just try to share the gospel with them. He shared his life as well. He cared for them. He loved them. They loved him in such a way that they honored him greatly and provided for his needs. And as Paul continues to make his way to Rome, he remains in chains, another obstacle. When he finally gets there, he's under house arrest for two years, another obstacle, more obstacles to the gospel. And let's not forget what Luke leaves out of his record of the mission of Christ. Persecution will continue to arise. Who's Caesar at this time? It's Nero. And what do we know about Nero? Nero persecuted Christians. History would say that it's believed that Nero was the one who gave the command to kill both Peter and Paul. That they died under his reign. Luke makes no mention of that. The Roman historian Tacitus in his annals records Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome. Now, this is interesting because Tacitus had deeply ingrained wrong beliefs about Christians. But he wrote in an attempt to, uh, to clarify this fire that had taken place in Rome. You see, it was believed that Nero had started the fire and he tried to cover up, and so he covered it up by blaming Christians. And this is what Tacitus has to say about this whole event and Christians at this time. He said, Nero blamed the Christians who are hated for their abominations and punished them with refined cruelty. Christ, from who they take their name, was executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Stopped for a moment this evil superstition reappeared, not only in Judea, where was the root of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things sordid and abominable come from every corner of the world, come together. Thus, first, those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested, and on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself as for their hatred of humanity. Did we read anything about the hatred of humanity throughout the book of Acts? Did I just miss that? Did I fail to cover that part of, of the record? So how does Tacitus arrive there? How does he say that Paul, these guys hate humanity? 
Well, it's because what? They're calling people to repentance and faith. They're calling people away from idolatry, away from the way that they've lived to now live somewhere else. And, and if they think to themselves, oh, well, to err is human, right? And you're telling me not to sin, right? To repent and believe, well, then you're telling me not to be human. Just like people today say, oh, you hate humanity because you don't agree with my views on sexuality. And so Tacitus wrongly believed that Christians hated humankind, just like people do in our day. But he goes on to say, before killing Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be torn apart by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine it. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows. And in the circus, he himself became a spectacle. For he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer, or he rode around in his chariot while they burned. All of this aroused the mercy of the people, even against these culprits who deserved exemplary punishment. For it, is, it was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. Now, Paul didn't die because of this snake bite. But Paul would die for the sake of the gospel at the hands of this one cruel person. Again, when we read Acts, we read stories of persecution of the church like Tacitus's annals. Or even when we look out over the world that we live in and we see all of the confusion and we see all of the hostility to the gospel itself, it's easy to become overwhelmed with all of the obstacles that stand against Christ. Friends, we cannot forget that the God that we serve overcomes all obstacles. Even in this account here, God is the one who brought these 276 persons safely to land. God is the one who enabled Paul to shake the snake off into the fire and not die. God was the one who healed many of these natives so that their hearts would be warmed to the gospel. God is the one who continued to grow the church despite all of these imperial persecutions. Christians die, but the church kept growing. As some of our early church fathers said, that the blood of martyrs was the seed of the church. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, that's great and all for them, but, you know, I haven't seen any miracles in my life. God hasn't delivered me from snake bites. I, I, I haven't been uh, rescued dramatically in any way. And even what little persecution I have faced, it seems to me to be winning well, friends, God also uses very ordinary means to overcome obstacles. Just look at verses 11 through 16. The journey to Rome was completed. And not even that could happen apart from the grace of God. But in verse 14, Paul got to spend seven days with the brothers. That's the Christians in Petoli. And in verse 15... When he finally made it to Rome, after three years, it says, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, 
They came from as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And we, we just fly by that and, and we forget the overall context. Might not seem like much to you, but, but this has been Paul's desire for years. Right? Ever since chapter 19, three years earlier, it was his desire to go to Rome and to be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. He wanted to see God's work among these Roman believers who had come to know Christ apart from his ministry and to be helped by them on his way to Spain. And so when he wrote his letter to the Romans from Corinth in Acts chapter 20, he said to them in Romans chapter 1, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Three years earlier and that had been his desire. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That had been Paul's desire for so long. For three years, through trial, through affliction, through imprisonment, through assassination attempts, through tempest, through shipwreck, through snakebite. But finally, by the grace of God, Paul's prayer had been answered, and so he thanked God and took courage. Do you not see the grace of God in that and overcoming obstacles? I thought about this week, you know, why, why don't we kind of see that sort of thing happening in our own prayer life? And I think it's because our, our, our prayer life is really pretty pathetic. You know, a lot of times we're like, hey, God, can I have a piece of candy? And then what we do is we go to our candy stash, we pull out a piece, we say, thank you, God. And that's about the extent of our prayer life. But Paul prayed to be encouraged by the work of God in the lives of others that he had no part in. And he patiently persevered in prayer for years through many trials until at last God did what Paul could not. And God did it. God answered that prayer through the encouragement and the fellowship of the church. And it pr produced gratitude and courage in Paul's heart. Friends, that too is God overcoming obstacles. God answering big prayers by his grace through the church that produces thankfulness and courage despite any and all obstacles. And friends, that's what God is doing in and through and for you in every obstacle that may threaten to silence the gospel, both in our hearts and in our mouths, because the mission of Christ continues.
But obstacles are not the only hindrance to the advance of the gospel. The second is disbelief. Disbelief is a strange word. We don't use it all that often. We usually opt for the more general word unbelief, right? Unbelief could include a lot of things, right? Someone who is unbelieving may simply have never heard the gospel before. So they, they have no idea. They're, they're completely ignorant to the gospel, therefore they're unbelieving. It may be someone who is misbelieving, holding to a false religion or worldview like the natives of Malta. They may be idol worshipers. They may have been led to wrong conclusions about Christianity like Tacitus or other Romans did. But disbelief is something different. Disbelief is when you have sufficiently heard the truth of God's word and you reject it. Right? It's not ignorance or confusion or, or being taken captive by erring philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. Disbelief is when you have clearly heard and grasped the message of the gospel, but you reject it. It's a refusal to believe God's word. You see, it's one thing to be patient with someone who doesn't know any different. It's another thing to deal with someone who ought to know better. The latter is often much more difficult and much more discouraging. And Paul gets to Rome, and in obedience to his mission to preach the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, but also just as a good Jew... Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. Despite being chained to a Roman soldier, he reported to them. And when they had gathered together, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people and the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So I'm innocent. I'm not deserving of anything, uh, you know, deserving of death here. They even examined me and they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. And for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, to be right up front with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel, the restoration of Israel through the re resurrection of the true Israel, Jesus Christ from the dead, that I am wearing this chain. And surprisingly, they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you, that you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And this is surprising to us for two reasons. I mean, one, they have not heard about Paul, right? They, they've, they've not received any word one way or another. Perhaps it's because his opponents have given up. Right? I mean, after two years of imprisonment, after three trials before two Roman governors and the vassal king of Judea, if that's not going to get it done, what's the point of notifying Rome? Or perhaps it's because they tried to let people know, right? They, they tried to inform them, but uh, they weren't so lucky and their ship was not saved. I don't know. But a second reason it's surprising is that despite all that they heard um, against Christianity, I mean, these people are aware of this sect that everywhere is spoken against. They were at least humble and open enough to hear him out. That's surprising. And so initially, it looks pretty promising. 
Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, right? I mean, that's, that's awesome. They come in great numbers. And from morning until evening, he expounded to them. And you know I've got to make a point of that, right? I mean, that's a day-long sermon. A day long. I mean, I, I, I don't say that. I hope you understand that. I, I, I make light of this, but I don't say this because I'm just saying, hey, we need to have long sermons for the sake of having long sermons. But just the reality of faithfully expounding God's Word takes time. And if we're going to be faithful to God's Word, we need to be able to give it time. And so just be thankful that we don't start in the morning and I go till evening. Though I was tempted to on this week because I really needed two sermons, but Kyle wouldn't let me. <clears throat> and so, I won't do that. But these people, they came in great number to Paul's lodging. They came to him in order to listen to him expound <clears throat> from morning until evening. And yet, in verse 24, they will be called disbelieving. Friends, could it be that these disbelievers were more open to hearing God's word than many who profess to believe in Jesus? Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets and so let's just be clear right here. What is the mission of the church? Yes, we serve through kindness. Yes, we develop caring relationships. Yes, we share our lives in order to build bridges to the gospel. But the mission of the church is the message. Let's make no mistake about it. It is to testify to the kingdom of God and to convince them about Jesus, who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. It's reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving why it was necessary that the Christ must suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, is the Son of God, who came and lived a perfect life in obedience to all of God's law, the life that you and I, we can never, ever live. And he gave up that life in order to sacrifice himself for sin. Three days later, he rose again as proof of who he is because only God can raise the dead, right? It proved that God's, the, the penalty and the power of sin has been defeated, that there is no more reason for us to be held in condemnation against God. And it proved that all who repent and believe will be reconciled to him, to live with him forever in his kingdom, glory for all eternity. That is the message that we proclaim. That is the message of the church. And verse 24 says, Some were convinced by what he said, but some disbelieved. They refused to see all of the ways that God had long foretold of the coming Christ, of his sacrificial death and resurrection, and the inclusion of the Gentiles. They refused to see how Jesus fulfilled the promises and purposes of God throughout all of history. They rejected the gospel. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. Now here's a great way to end a sermon that's been going on all day long right? 
Here's, here's a gospel invitation at the end of your message. Preaching lab guys, do not do this. He said, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. He's referring to Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. And every gospel records Jesus saying the same thing. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. When God sent Isaiah some 700 years before Jesus, gave Isaiah a vision of the temple filled with God's glory He purified Isaiah's lips so that he could preach to the people. He gave Isaiah his word that told of the suffering servant and the reconciliation of Israel. And at the same time, God told Isaiah that they would not listen. And they didn't. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he quoted this passage in every single gospel as the reason why people would reject his teaching. And they did. And now Paul quotes it again as the reason why the Jews disbelieve that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ. That their heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and God would heal them. But instead they would hear but never understand and would see indeed but never perceive just as God said they would. And so the gospel went to the Gentiles. Here's why that matters. Most of you are not Jews. In fact, I don't know if any of you are Jews. But for most of us, the gospel is not new. We've heard it many, 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 many times before. We're familiar with God's Word. We've read it. We've heard it preached. Grew up around it. It's very, very familiar. We've seen it. We've heard it. We think that we've got it. And so the danger for us is that we may hear but never understand, see but never perceive, that our hearts would grow dull, that we would barely hear, and that we would close our eyes to the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ, the only hope of our salvation. You know, this is one of my biggest fears as a pastor. That we would go through life thinking that we see and thinking that we hear, but in truth, our hearts are dull to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to go year after year after year after year of my life like Isaiah preaching to those who will not listen, right? And that's not an unfounded fear. Because i got to be honest with you, when I look out over this church, I see dullness. 
I see apathy towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. I see apathy towards the sin in our own hearts. And I don't want to spend my life wondering if it made any difference. If preaching through the book of Acts made any difference at all for us. Or if we're just hearing and we're seeing but never perceiving. I'm just spinning my wheels trying to minister to disbelief among those who ought to know better. And I think to myself, should I, like Paul, take the gospel to those who don't know any different because they will listen? I don't don't say that to scare you. But I do say that to seriously implore you to see and to hear and to understand. To open your eyes to open your ears, to open your hearts, to take nothing for granted. And if you're wondering to yourself, okay, well, Chet, how do I know? How do I know whether or not I'm doing that? How do I know whether or not I'm truly seeing or I'm hearing or I'm understanding? It's right here in the text. You need to assess whether or not you are truly living in repentance and faith. The the key is right here in verse 27. Are you beholding the glory of Christ? I don't mean that you're familiar with the name of Jesus. I mean that you look at him and more and more and more, as the days and the weeks and the months and the years go by, you see him as more glorious. You cherish him more. That you see his value and worth And you desire him above all else. Do you desire to honor him with your life? Do you hear his words? And I don't mean, well, you know, I read my Bible today, check. Or I managed to stay awake during that really long sermon, check. But that you want to hear from God. That you long to hear his word so that you can obey him. You want to hear so that you can follow him. Do you understand? Not just the abstract theological concepts, not so that you can pass some some test in systematic theology, but so that your heart might be transformed, so that you understand your deep need of Jesus and that you love him and that you want to follow him. That that's what matters to you more than anything else. Do you turn away from your sin? You turn away from yourself to God because you hate sin and abhor it because it is displeasing to God. Or do you really love it and not want to give it up? Are you experiencing healing? Not, Not physical healing, but but healing from the scars of sin. Either the sins that you have committed or maybe sins that have been committed against you. But you're, you're finding yourself being changed, being transformed. You, you now have faith and hope and love and, and joy in Christ that you didn't have before. You're, you're now a different person. They're, your soul is being healed. It's not about you arriving By God's grace, you can see genuine repentance and faith in Christ. Friends, that's how we know. 
But just like with obstacles, we will encounter disbelief as we all play our part in the continuing mission of Christ. It happened with Isaiah, it happened with Jesus, it happened with Paul, and guess what? We will confront that as well. It's unavoidable. But just because some disbelieve, it doesn't mean that we have not been called or that we have not been sent. It doesn't mean that we should stop proclaiming the good news to engage and evangelize the lost or stop laboring to establish, equip, and expand the church. Because despite obstacles and unbelief, third, the mission of Christ continues. The book of Acts ends with no mention of the other apostles. We don't know what became of those guys that they trained up, guys like Barnabas or Timothy or Titus. We don't know what happened to the church in Jerusalem or the churches that were established throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth at that point. What we do know is that finally the gospel had come to Rome, the very center of the known world at that time, the very gateway to the ends of the earth. And though Paul is bound, the word of God is not bound. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense means that he had to pay his own rent while under house arrest. And despite being chained to a Roman guard 24-7, we still see that he's, and being confined to his lodging, we still see that he welcomed all who came to him. He didn't let that be a hindrance. Yes, I'm chained. Still, I'm going to welcome you. All who want to come in here, I will gladly preach to you. And again, we see the mission of the church is the message of the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And remember, he's in chains without hindrance. Those are amazing words. Paul's in chains. The gospel's going forward without hindrance. You see, Paul is under house arrest, but that's okay because the book of Acts is not Paul's story. Right? The, the most important story in the book of Acts is the gospel story. They may threaten the gospel, but they can never silence it. They may imprison or even kill Christ's messengers, but they cannot kill the message because the gospel lives. And the gospel lives because Jesus lives and he continues to do and teach and nothing will have dominion over the king of glory. Every knee will one day bow. Every tongue will indeed confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so all of this in including every single moment of our lives, is his story, which is meant for his glory. Friends, you and I, we're not Paul, right? I mean, we know that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play in this unfolding mission of Christ, right? I mean, the reality is, like, God's purposes for him in the, in the fine details are, are, yeah, they're different. They're different. But the overarching purpose of God's purpose for, for his church, his mission for his church is the same. It's to spread the name of Christ so that the glory of Christ might cover the earth from sea to sea. That still remains. 
2,000 years from now? No, no one is going to read your name in the book of Acts or letters that you happen to write to other churches scattered about. In fact, if you think about it, in three or four generations, your name will be all but forgotten. How do I know? How much do you remember about your great-great-grandparents? Only about as much as a genealogy or a tombstone or an old picture can tell. No one will remember the rewards that you received. No one will remember anything that you had published. No one will remember all of the accolades, all of the accomplishments, or what your GPA was. No one is going to stand over your grave at your funeral and read your resume. Oh, Chet. Chet attended the University of Missouri where he attained his Bachelor's of Science in Human Development and Family Studies. He there went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where he received his Master's of Divinity. He's apparently proficient in Microsoft Office and these people were glad to serve as professional references for him. Blah, blah, blah. No one cares. No one's going to remember. At best, when I look at my own life, at best, someone may write a history of Redeemer Church that gives a paragraph to how in 2009 we moved here to start this church and that I served as its pastor for so many years so that it can end up in the Urbana Free Library to collect dust until some guy like Ben Bilesma goes and, and digs it out of the documents that no one ever looks at. And if that's the case, then someone wise once said, why are you then living for your resume? Live for your eulogy. Because it's your eulogy, no one lists off your accomplishments. Instead, they tell stories of how you impacted their lives. You kids get up and they, they give little snippets of your life as expressions of how you love them and how they loved you. Your friends, they, they come up and, and they talk about your devotion, how you are always there for them no matter what. And as Christians... It is our hope that when they stand up there, they would say, I came to know and love Jesus more because of him. I came to behold the glory of Christ more because of her. That's what we want. That's the ultimate legacy that we can live behind. Is giving that the hope of glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, then, we don't live for the resume or for the eulogy. We live for the doxology, that a word of praise might be given not to us, but to him, so that through it, people would take courage in Christ. That is the legacy that we want to live behind. That's, that's why we live. That's what we proclaim. Not a kingdom of self, but a, the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We may be hindered by chains or 
by sin or by weakness or by limited number of days, but the gospel is never bound. This is why the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, that you and whoever else that ever has or ever will be saved has been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding, the prevailing, increasing, and multiplying word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That will go on. That is your only worthwhile legacy. The glory that will cover the earth from sea to sea. That's the only worthwhile mission, the only worthwhile legacy that you can leave behind. I believe it was Dawson Trotman, the the founder of the Navigators, that once said, there are only three things that are eternal. God the word of God, and the souls of men. Those are the only three things that continue forever. And so those are the only things that are worthy of mission and legacy. Friends, the mission remains. We are still called to bear witness to Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. There are still over six thousand unreached, unengaged people groups throughout the world. And we have the nations at our doorstep because we live in a university town. There is no reason not to. We are still called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. And we do that because all authority has been given to him, and he promises that he will be with us always to the end of the age. You see, the mission of Christ continues. He's still continuing to do and teach. We are still called to devote ourselves daily to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers so that we might take heart despite the obstacles, despite the disbelief, so that the overflow, out of the overflow of our worship, we might persevere in this mission. And so, we come to the end of Acts. And I pray that we would not just close our Bibles and walk away from it. I pray that we wouldn't walk out of here with our hearts just as dull as it was when we walked in. That we would be transformed. That we would be changed. That we would think differently about our mission, about the legacy that we were meant to leave behind. Same one that Paul was, the same one that the apostles were. They, they're left off and, and we go unnamed and, and based upon the book of Acts, we have no idea what happened to them because that's not the point. The gospel is the most important story. And that's what you and I proclaim. Because despite obstacles and disbelief, the mission of Christ continues. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray for your help. Pray for boldness like the church did in Acts chapter 4 that we know that you're sovereign as you continue to work and to do good deeds, performing signs and wonders in order to to verify and, and 
extend the gospel into new regions. We know that you have called us to participate in this mission. We all have an opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility to bear witness to Christ with our words and with our lives. So Lord, I pray that the book of Acts would inform and change that your spirit would fill us to know and to believe and to take heart that we would truly trust that you, the same God who is at work throughout the pages of Scripture, is the same God who is at work today. That the Christ that we proclaim lives, continues to work, and continues to teach. And may that embolden us, may it encourage us, May it stir up thankfulness in our hearts so that we might live and play our part in this unfolding mission of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.